This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. Good morning, everybody. I am Glenda Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Wendy Ying from Sarasota, Florida. And you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network, June 3rd, 2021. This episode is brought to you by Kem and Equine, Holistic Veterinary House Calls, and the American Driving Society. Good morning, Horse World! Well, as always, Wendy is here on the first Thursday of every month doing the driving episode. And I know we might have some new listeners today, thanks to the Carriage Association of America. We did a little meeting for them last week. It was a lot of fun. So welcome if you're new. We hope you enjoy it. We hope uh, some of you new to podcast people also find podcasts that you like to listen to. There's plenty of them here at the Horse Radio Network. We have like 20 of them. And Wendy is here, as we always said, on Horses in the Morning, the first Thursday of every month. So, Wendy, what do we have on today? show we're going to get right to it because we have a fun show planned for today i'm so excited yeah we have a super fun show we have film director tony Searle, and he previews the re-release of his documentary the royal foreign hand which follows prince philip in the early days of combined driving and features one of our favorites davis saunders who was coachman for the prince at the time and we have Kathleen Hake from the Carriage Association of America. She talks to world champion mule driver Bill Neal about the wagons that he's bringing to the CAA Carriage Showcase. Plus, Abby Trexler shares the latest news from the American Driving Society. And I have some tips to keep your horses and dogs feeling great well into their golden years. So listen in. But first, as always, we're going to start with your product feature. What do you have this time? Well, since we're talking about old animal aches and pains. I'm talking about uh, a formula called body sore, right? It, so it's for everything. It's for like those aches and pains that you get, whether it's joint pain, muscle pain, tendon pain, or even decreased range of motion. In Chinese medicine, if your chi isn't flowing freely, we say your chi, your chi is stagnant, and that means you have pain somewhere. And body sore is, uh, this is also a formula that we use in humans. Um, and it has some herbs that we've talked about before on this show. So, because I talk about body sore a lot, this is one of the most popular formulas for animals and people as far as herbal formulas go. But the two main herbs in it um, to break the stagnation and restore the free flow of chi is Mo Yao and Ru Shang. Okay, and those translate to frankincense and myrrh. So we all know frankincense and myrrh from the times of, you know, baby Jesus. And in the, in the ancient times, these are herbs. They're, bo- they're both resins from trees, and these were used topically and internally as pain relievers. So that's why those herbs were so valuable back in the day, because they were medicines. And myrrh uh, has... Um, chemicals in it that uh, block your, uh, that stimulate your opioid receptors. So it's like, um, you know, it's a real pain relieving herb. And then frankincense 
has been rebranded in this day and age as Boswellia. So many of you have heard of Boswellia. It's in a lot of joint supplements. But Boswellia has um, has components in it that act like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, uh, like Advil, and um, also it helps spare your glycosaminoglycans in your joint fluid. So it keeps your joint fluid viscous. And that cushions your joints. Some other interesting herbs that we have in here is uh, Shuan Nu Shi, and that is ox's knee. And this plant uh, activates the cells, your fibroblasts, and your fibroblasts are the cells that build up like the fibers in your body, right? So your tendons and your muscles. So it helps stimulate uh, your body's repair ability. And the other thing is dujong, which is the Chinese rubber tree bark. And what that does, it, it activates osteoblasts. Osteoblasts are the little cells that build your bones. And it downregulates osteoclasts. Osteoclasts are the cells that chew up your bones for inflammation and remodeling. So... Uh, that is similar to the way the drug Osphos works. And many of you know about Osphos. We use that for navicular disease and for joint pain. Uh, and then also the rubber tree has phytoestrogens in it. And phytoestrogens, we all know like when your mare gets hurt, sometimes in the olden days we just say, throw them out in the pasture and let them have a baby and then they'll feel better. Well, one of the things that when mares have a spike in estrogen it relaxes their tendons. So it can help that. So relaxing the tendons and fascia can really help with um, pain and also with body repair. And uh, body sort comes in, in three different um, formulas. We have concentrated granules for the horses. And then in dogs, you can use the horse-sized granules if you have a big dog. It also comes in capsules. And now we have a new... Um, formula. It's a tincture. It's a liquid tincture of herbal, of this herbal formula. And it, it comes in a little, you can dose it with a dropper. So this is good for little dogs or cats that are hard to get medicine into. And you can always find these herbs at uh, www.drwendyying.com. Well, we have award-winning documentary filmmaker Tony Cyril with us today. He uh, made the incredible documentary about Prince Philip and his royal foreign hand. So welcome, Tony, to the show. Thank you very much, Wendy. I'm uh, very pleased to be part of this. You know, um, I uh, I started combined driving in, uh, when did I start? Like in the late 90s. And I love the sport. And I always knew Prince Philip was involved. But um, until just recently, I didn't realize that you had made this documentary that covers this whole, not only his uh, life make with the foreign hand, but also it really um, covers kind of the beginning, the history of combined driving. So I'm so excited to have you on here. And can you tell us a little bit about this film? I can indeed. Um, it was a very interesting experience for me because um, I hadn't had any experience of making films uh, about horse subjects, mm -hmm. and I wouldn't have thought that I would be the person to to be chosen to make the film. But uh, I was approached um, in a very clandestine way 
Um, you will hardly believe this. It was April the 1st, which is April Fool's Day, and I, I... received a phone call. From MI5. Wait. Please tell me it was from MI5. Please. <laughs> it was very late at night, <laughs> and I had I didn't know the person that I was speaking to, and I was asked to go to Windsor Castle to arrive at the Royal Mews, where I would be introduced to Prince Philip. I had no idea what it was about. Nobody really <laughs> explained. But you don't turn down uh, an invitation like that. Right. <laughs> On the Monday morning, um, I turned up at the time, and I saw a competition carriage in the middle of the stable yard with four horses being put to it with uh, various grooms doing the job. And I thought, well, I, d I can't see Prince Philip. Um, I, I, I just wonder whether he's going to turn up. Well, it turned out that he was just one of the, uh, one of the people putting the horses <laughs> to the carriage. <laughs> right. And I went up to him and he simply said, oh, just get up there. He said, just sit there and I'll join you. <laughs> so I sat beside him, still having very little idea what this was about, and this w began a two-hour drive around Windsor Great Park, by driven by him with the four in the four in hand. Oh my gosh! In which he explained to me what the project was. Um, I was never actually asked. Would I like to direct it? Would I like to write it? But at the end of the two hours, I knew that we had a really exciting project. Mm -hmm. He was a really expert driver. Um, at that time, he was driving Cleveland Bays, uh, big horses. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he had written a book called Competition Carriage Driving, and he had also been responsible for setting out the rules of the sport and therefore was very much involved. But he was a real expert. And I must say that two hours I really enjoyed. I learned a lot. He explained to me everything that went on. And I said to him, this should not be a film that you make without an audience in mind. This is going to be of interest to a very wide public not just the equestrian public so why don't we make it as a television documentary i had uh, television credentials i had worked for the bbc for many years as a producer and i had contacts and i knew i could get the film shown on um, on television so i set about making a 50 minute documentary largely based on his book totally with his involvement right the way through he talks us through the sport. You see everything he did during that year, including at the end of the film, he wins the uh, event at the Royal Windsor Horse Show, which was the only time in his career that he ever did. Oh, that's so per what perfect timing. He came up to me after he won that competition. Um, we had, I think, we, as far as I remember, we had three cameras on it. And he said, I've got you to thank for this. He said, <laughs> I've never managed to win it before. And it's because the filming is being done that, uh, <laughs> that, that, I, that I won this year. And to cap it all, the prize, was, uh, which was a cup, was presented by his wife, 
the Queen. And it was a lovely scene in the film of her handing this lovely award to her own husband. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, that is great. What year? That Do you remember great. what year that was? Uh, that was 1980. I, as far as I can remember, it's 1981. Oh, wow. And, but the, the film was actually broadcast uh, to. Uh, it went out on um, uh, Easter, uh, Easter Sunday and went out and got a very big audience in the UK, not just people interested in equestrian matters. Um, it was very popular and they liked it very much. The film was also sold as a at that time vhs tape um so at a lot of horse events people could get hold of the the film and i think it was regarded as a sort of bible of um uh, of, of competition driving so for you young uh, listeners you can ask your parents what that is um, <laughs> <laughs> so t tell me did what after you had it made did it did everything need approved to buy by the by the Abs firm yeah, the, any project, and I've, I've actually made um, several royal films, not all equestrian, but they don't associate themselves with projects without having total control over mm. whether the, pro the, the program goes out. So he approved the film. Um, I mean, he'd, he'd, take, he'd taken, a part, taken part in it and therefore knew everything that was in it, but he approved it. And was very pleased to to uh, to have it shown, which uh, I, th I think is very good. I think it's so great that it went out to the general audience, and you focused on that rather than just doing like the horsey audience or the driving audience, because That's exactly right. And it was his aim to make the sport of of interest to a much wider public. I think he mm -hmm. realised that uh, at that time. Most people associated with carriage driving were tended to have a fair amount of money behind them, and mm -hmm. it wasn't regarded as a general sport that everybody could take part in. Right. And, um, I think he played quite a large part in making it more popular in uh, in the UK. I mean, he wasn't the only person; there were quite a number. But I think he he was responsible for quite a lot of the, um, the popularity of the, uh, of the sport. And, right. of course, he, he went on driving carriages into his 90s, although um, in the later days uh, he was only driving ponies and mm -hmm. really only driving for pleasure. Um, I don't think he did, at the very, when he was in his 90s, I don't think he was participating in competitions anymore. There were yeah. pictures a couple months ago of him driving, actually. He still was out there with driving fours, and you're right, they were ponies. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did, now, you weren't a horse person, so you went into this as not a horse person. What kind of appreciation, because I'm sure, how long did the filming take? Uh, the filming, we, we shot in two... We had two sessions during the year, okay. um, one where we did all the preparation work in Windsor Park, which was filmed over about a three-week period, 
And then we had another fortnight in the autumn when there were competitions taking place. So um, those were those were really events that, um, and, and in, on some occasions we had several cameras on it. Um, but that's that's why we had to film in two separate times of the year. But it was all made within the period of one complete year. Um, and then the, the post production took place, and the program was broadcast in uh, in uh, 1982. So all of our listeners are horse people, and most of the ones listening today will have driven a horse at some point or another. What was your? You weren't a horse person going in. How did you feel about horses in general? What What did you take away about the horse side of things? I I had huge respect for the skills that he showed. And I have to say, I like horses. Um, I have in the past ridden badly. Um, <laughs> didn't really enjoy riding. There's I a just, lot of carriage drivers that say that too. I'm one of them, <laughs> by the way. So. so, But my expertise was to be able to make films about more or less any subject. I was asked, I was very often invited to make films and I had to learn the subject up. Well, having made uh, this film, I also made a film about the Royal Muse, which is yet another horse film. And I was also um, approached by the agent of the Sultan of Oman, who, who was, a again, a, a very big horse person, very keen on horses, uh, to make a 50-minute documentary out in Oman about his stables and about the relevance of horses out in Oman. So you make one film about horses and you then get regarded as being an expert on horses and uh, asked to make several other films. That was the way, that's the way it goes. <laughs> oh my gosh, Tony, that's like you're living the dream life right there for all of our listeners. I'm sure like we've all just love to peek our head into the stables and you got to just see everything and hear everything about it. It's, it's it, it so was. great. There was, there's an interesting aspect to this. I very often get asked how easy was it to work with Prince Philip? He's known to be um, not to suffer fools <laughs> and uh, he speaks his mind and uh, I think probably has a reputation of not perhaps being the easiest person to work with. Mm -hmm. And on our first day of filming, we want, I, I decided that I was going to do something that was fairly easy. We took the carriage with four horses, with him driving, up onto what's called Smith's Lawn, which is where they play polo in, um, in Windsor Park. And all I wanted him to do was to drive across the lawn with a camera tracking beside him so that we could shoot the opening title sequence. Very, very simple, driving a horse. Anyway, at the beginning of this, he said to me, and I'd set the whole thing up, he said, it's not going to work. He said, the horses will not look good if they are riding in a direction away from where their stables are. <laughs> and I thought to myself, is he actually pulling my leg? Is, is this a sort of test? And he was saying, no, you can't do what you want to do. You're going to have to do it my way. So I said to him, I'll tell you what, could we try it this way? And then if it doesn't work, we'll do it your way. 
we'll have the horses going from right to left instead of left to right. Anyway, we did it. There were no problems at all. The horses looked absolutely perfectly, and we never did it his way. <laughs> that went on. He accepted my authority as a film director to do things according to my expertise, and he didn't challenge. And there was one other aspect which is quite interesting. The condition he made at the beginning of the filming was that he would film during the mornings and then at lunchtime he would go and have lunch with the Queen in Windsor Castle and he may or may not come back during the afternoon. That was the agreement. And I thought to <laughs> Did myself, it depend how many martinis he had at lunch? What was that? <laughs> I thought, this is going to be very difficult because what do I film in the afternoon? Because it's he's involved in all the scenes that we need to film. And anyway, what I did, David Saunders was the technical advisor, apart from being his head groom, and was very supportive and was able to do things um, that helped us a lot during the filming and even participate in scenes. But anyway, the very first day, I wasn't expecting to see Prince Philip coming back in the afternoon after his lunch, having given himself the way out. But he came back. He was there at, I think, two, half past two in the afternoon, stayed for all the filming. For the first three days, the same rule applied. He went away, had lunch with the Queen, came back after lunch, but he came back every day for those three days. After the third day, he came out and did what we, the film crew, did. We brought, we took a picnic so that we could um, not waste time going to a pub or a, a restaurant. Um, we, we had a picnic in the park. Anyway, from the fourth day onwards, he had a picnic with us every day. And he just became one of the team. And I think oh, that wow. really says something about him. He, I think he was testing us out. He didn't want to get bored. Mm -hmm. And he gave himself a route to escape. He had to make sure he liked right. you all first. <laughs> he did. And he never used it. And I can tell you, Windsor Park is on directly under the main flight lines into Heathrow Airport. So about every three minutes, sometimes even every two minutes, you have an aeroplane flying overhead. Well, if you're filming and recording sound, you have to stop filming. So time and again, we had to time what we were doing according to the aeroplanes flying overhead. He showed oh tremendous patience because he would stop. He was professional enough to be able to start again. He always knew what he had to say. Of course, he knew the, the subject backwards. And he put up with those difficulties. And he realized that that was a problem. And the other thing, and I take my hat off to him again for this, some occasions the weather wasn't terrific and we got rain. Well, we had quite a lot of equipment and it all had to be, if it started to rain, put into the camera vehicles um, to protect it from the rain. He was the first to come along and help load the cases into the uh, into the van. He, he never stood by and let other people just do all the work. He just participated. 
And he was really very much one of the team. So I took my hat off to him for that. <laughs> that's really, uh, that's so great that he participated. And I think that's what we all in driving who have met him during our sport feel about him. Like he, he just is one of the, one of the participants. And it's probably, it was probably a nice break for him to be around people that, that he could be like that with. I think that that was it. And he was very affable. He was um, not, not at all difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have to say, um, when I worked later with the Queen on the Queen and her ceremonial horses, I had to direct the Queen. <laughs> and <laughs> she was so easy to work with. She just simply wanted to do the job very well and always put me at my ease um, I, I have to say that they were not difficult people to work with. Absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful, and I still, I, I, I must say, I, I've, I've now got great admiration for people who drive carriages, particularly in competition, um, because I think it is exceedingly skillful. And um, watching the way he did it, and of course he he had to for the film explain precisely what he was doing, how he was doing it. Um, so I think I learnt a lot, but I have to say I have never driven a carriage myself, and uh, I don't think I would really trust myself to do so. <laughs> you can do well, it. Well, if you come to Florida, Glenn will give you. We'll a make ride. sure you can do it. We'll we'll give it a try. If I can do it, you can do it. So. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, Tony, and- how can people find out more about your uh, film, and uh, is it going to be re- released in the future? I we, we've have had. Well, it was before Prince Philip died. I had some inquiries because his um, uh, what, what was it? His hundredth birthday was was coming up, mm-hmm. and there were moves. There were people saying that they were interested in retransmitting the film because it showed him in a very different light. It was really him participating in his pastime. It wasn't mm-hmm. the official. Prince Philip. It was Prince Philip doing the thing he absolutely loved doing. But it hasn't gone any further because he died and he had, I'm sure it must have been the same in the United States, there was a huge amount of coverage of all aspects of his life. Not a lot about the carriage driving, I may say. Mm -hmm. So I'm rather hoping that when perhaps six months or so has passed, somebody will say, this film exists, and it ought to be shown again. And I think people would be very interested. It would be reaching a completely new audience, um, but I think they would be interested. Can people watch it anywhere right now and online? The only place it is at the moment, David Saunders had a, um, a VHS tape copy, which is not the highest quality. It was just... <laughs> They never were. (laughs) And he put that on YouTube. Oh, wow. So the film is actually on YouTube. Um, I have to say, I would much prefer that a higher... It isn't bad. It's uh, just, I would say, acceptable. But I wish that a higher um, definition and a higher quality version could be put on. But in order to do that, I'd have to get permission from Buckingham Palace to do it. Um, I think um, David has a great advantage because he had a very close 
connection with Prince Philip, yeah. and he knew that it was perfectly all right to do that. Um, but I would have liked a higher quality um, uh, version to have been put on. But there we are. Well, I'll put a link to that. David Saunders used to co-host this show for a while, um, and I will put a link to it uh, on our show notes as well. So if somebody wants to go watch it, they can. At least they can see it. It's 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 not bad. It's it's all right, but uh, well, you get the flavor of it, right? So. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tony, this has been great. I love hearing these stories, and you know, because of our connection with David, you know, we've heard stories from him as well. Uh, but you know, he used to work there. You didn't work there, so this is a whole different side of it. Very, very different. I mean, yeah. his relationship with Prince Philip was quite remarkable. Um, Prince Philip had a tremendous respect for David and regarded him as a really top expert car- carriage driver. And I think Prince Philip learnt a lot from David Saunders. And I have to say, the success of the film rests a lot on the support and help we had from David. Um, he <laughs> was absolutely, he was determined that it was going to be a success. And he was very, very supportive. You know what's interesting about that, Tony? Is I've done a lot of hours with David Saunders doing this show. And he, he he's so humble about that, he gives all the credit to Prince Philip. Uh, that's, that's right. Um, but we very often, the, the, the team very often said how we would actually do it without him. And he was able to influence Prince Philip and get assistance. It, 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 very often when you're making a film, you want to do things a different way. And uh, uh, sometimes it's a bit difficult for people who don't know the ins and outs of filmmaking. But David was very patient and would explain to Prince Philip. And he made sure that we got exactly what we wanted. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that. Well, I'm going to make sure David li- well, David does listen to this show, so he'll hear you say that. Uh, the only thing that disappoints me in this whole story, Tony, is that Prince Philip didn't call the airport and have the planes rerouted. That's the only <laughs> thing that disappoints me in the whole story. That would be really, that would be really gay. I, I, it just amazes me. I was, I was going to say, it amazes me that when William the Conqueror uh, built uh, Windsor Castle, that he didn't think that one day in the future that it was going to be under the flight paths. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tony. This has been fun. It's no surprise Americans are among the most stressed out people on the planet, and your horse gets stressed out too. Every horse experiences stress caused by things like exercise, environmental conditions like the weather, or their everyday surroundings. Travel causes horses stress just like humans, and even simple diet changes. All of these variables contribute to the stress levels of your horse. This might also come as a surprise. You can help reduce the negative impacts of stress by feeding your horse chromium every day. By lowering the levels of the stress hormone cortisol and optimizing energy use, feeding chromium results in improved body upkeep, health, performance, and overall well-being. But this part is important. Don't just feed any chromium. Feed your horse the only FDA-reviewed source of chromium 
propionate on the market today. <laughs> As for by name and stress less, learn more about Chemtrace Chromium at chemin.com slash chromium EQ. Well, coming up next, we have Kathleen Hake. Now, I recommend for this segment, because she's talking to a guy who's bringing a couple of carriages out to the CAA meeting for the Carriage Association of America. A couple of wagons. We're going to put pictures of those wagons in our show notes. Go look at the pictures first. And then listen to this interview, and I think it'll all make a lot more sense. But there's some interesting history with the wagons that he's bringing out there. Hey, this is Kathleen with the Carriage Association of America, and today we are here with Bill Neal. Bill is going to be bringing two vehicles to our CAA Carriage Showcase in Thousand Oaks, California tomorrow, and he is going to tell us a little bit about them. And... Actually, I take that back. He's bringing three vehicles, one sleigh, he's bringing a Portland Cutter, and then he's bringing two wagons. One is a Hawkins Hitch Wagon, and the other is a a Henderson Sierra Mountain Wagon. And Bill, you were telling me that um, you did the restoration on the Henderson I did not do the restoration on the Henderson. I obtained it early in my career as a driver, and I had it restored. Okay. And so at this point, it is a um, three-seat passenger vehicle. Um, It it has – are those white wheels or are they yellow? They are very light yellow. Uh, The – There are three seats to the wagon. However, uh, it can be used in any of four configurations. The back two seats are removable, so it can be used as a pickup truck if you prefer, or it can be used with one seat facing forward, two seats facing forward, or the back two seats can be faced vis-a-vis. Fantastic. So this vehicle is not a cut under, which means that the ve- the wheels are not able to turn underneath the vehicle. And so that's one of the hints that this probably wasn't used for city driving. That's correct. Uh, it is the equivalent of a modern day suburban. It is very, very heavily built. It has massive brakes wonderful springs and its very name sierra mountain wagon means it was designed to travel the uh less than friendly roads of the sierra mountains in california and so henderson was the company that made it and then the sierra mountain wagon is the type of vehicle that it is that is correct william p henderson is the name of the company that built the wagon, and they are from Stockton, California. And my understanding is that this has some very special springs underneath it. Can you tell us about the long springs? Yes, I can. There are uh, a tiny bit of background. Henderson in California uh, repaired and rebuilt many eastern wagons that had come west including stagecoaches, mud wagons, and these spring wagons. In doing so, he learned that certain eastern wagons were not suitable for western use, and therefore he revised them. And the original of this type of wagon was from Studebaker. It had a side spring on it, but it was a standard C spring. 
Henderson did two things with this wagon that are outstanding. The first place, he went to what I call a recurve spring, using the principle of a bow, as in an archer's bow, in that the spring has the ends of it are curled up, and the center is a C spring, so is therefore a recurve spring. Then these springs, left to right, are attached by a welded torsion bar between the two springs, so that when riding on a steep side hill, as with passengers or a load in the wagon box, as one side of the wagon begins to shift on the downward side, the torsion bar actually torques the opposite side spring, thereby tending to hold the wagon level, even on a side hill. That sounds like it would give you a great ride, no matter what type of terrain you're going over. Um, The other wagon that you're bringing, which is a Hawkins hitch wagon, the Hawkins was the person that made it, and the type of vehicle is a hitch wagon, was doesn't have quite the same type of springs under it, does it? No. The uh, To clarify one thing, Hawkins is the name of the family. The maker is unknown of that wagon, but I have a very, very long and elaborate history or provenance on that wagon. I rebuilt that wagon, but it is exactly the opposite sort of a thing from the Henderson in that It is cut under, and it is not at all suitable for rough country or heavy work because any cut under wagon is much more prone to tip over, Uh, and it was designed for city use, and it has a platform spring on the front, which would allow it to be cut under and standard springing in the rear. Uh, However, when I first got the wagon, it had 14 leaves in the rear springs. When I rebuilt it, I only replaced eight of them because it was so heavy duty that uh, it was used to haul things like anvils and kegs of horseshoes and various things like that. So the leaves in the springs, the more that you have, the heavier those compress and, and the more weight that they can take. Is that correct? That is correct, and since I don't haul that kind of a load, but I do haul people in it or I drive myself around, I have the extra leaves, and I could replace them, but I simply, uh, when I replace the springs, I replace it as more lightly sprung, so it's a much more comfortable ride. And the other different, one of the other differences between these two vehicles, other than the color, because the hitch wagon is red and the Sierra Mountain wagon is green is the braking system. I see that the Sierra Mountain has a handbrake that would have been operated by the driver. Um, does the hitch wagon have a handbrake or is that a foot brake? No, the hitch wagon has a foot brake, and once again, it relates to the use. The foot brake on the city wagon was more than enough. You put the brake on to ease it when you went around a corner or down a gradual grade, and you could do it with your foot. And your hands were often, as you can imagine, quite full because sometimes the hitch wagon would have a six or even an eight up in front of it. However, on a Sierra mountain wagon, it has massive brakes because it was expected to go 
over a very rough country. Therefore, uh, if you look carefully, there is a little foot lever on the side of the handbrake so that the driver can actually lock those brakes up or nearly so for a long grade where it would be necessary to really have massive brakes. And the brake shoes on that wagon are both large and replaceable. Ah, so it really was, these two are very much designed, even though the, the fundamental idea is the same, very different, just like you would have a difference between like a pickup truck and a, and a car to a certain extent, um, as far as being able to brake and being able to be used in different ways. And then going back to the hitch wagon, this wagon, because it is a cut under, which means again, that the wheels can turn underneath the vehicle it can take a sharper turn than the Sierra Mountain Wagon, um, which, again, goes back to that city use. Um, now, do you know where this Hawkins vehicle was used? What towns? Yes, I have a rather extensive history on the wagon. It was really funny, uh, really fun because I also have met the current generation of Hawkins family all the way back to the grandmother. Uh, the Hawkins family had this wagon up in the Madeline Plains in Northern California, and they starved out after the First World War. The wagon, they drove the wagon from the Madeline Plains up to Vail, Oregon, where it sat in the front yard of a homestead up there for many years, and the kids played on it. Then a man uh, from north uh, near Portland discovered it while hunting over there, bought it was going to restore it, did not. I found out about it. I purchased it, and I restored it. And when I did, I put it on the web, and the family recognized it and called me and asked if they could come see it. And they even brought, as I said, grandmother, who used to play on it as a little girl in the front yard. All of this, and there's a lot more to the story, um, is documented in the information I will bring with the wagon. So, Although I don't have a history of who manufactured it, I have a very long history of where it was, where it had been, how it got starved out. And I also have letters from the Hawkins family and a book giving their family history. What a fantastic thing to have that type of connection with a vehicle. Now, if you've never been to a carriage showcase before, it's somewhat similar to a car show. So we go and we look at these vehicles um, that are brought from all over. Um, there are six different classes that you can enter your vehicle in. We have restored amateur, restored professional, original, which means that that vehicle is still in original condition. We have a class for new vehicles. Um, they still need to be in that traditional style, but they are, they're newer vehicles. We have miniature reproductions, vehicles in use that have been restored within the last 30 years. And then we have vehicles in use that were restored more than 30 years ago. We're also going to have a photo showcase this particular time, um, which we're looking forward to. Now, Bill happened to mention that he is bringing his documentation documentation. When you do a carriage restoration is incredibly important and you have to consider when you start whether or not you really want to do a restoration or a conservation, which is a, is a very long conversation. But um, one of the, the trophies that we give out 
is the Carl Casper Trophy, and he is really big into making the decision about conservation versus restoration and that type of thing. And that trophy is awarded to the highest scoring restored vehicle. We also have the Sydney Latham Memorial Trophy, which is restored, uh, excuse me, awarded to the highest scored restored vehicle in use. We have the very, very popular People's Choice Award. And then the Colonel Davis Documentation Award, which goes for the best documented vehicle, which it sounds like Bill's going to be in the running for, which is pretty exciting. Um, the other thing that's going to be happening at this conference is we're going to have David Saunders there. He's going to be giving some marinesmanship lessons, which um, I know David has been on the program before and he does a fantastic job. But we should also highlight Bill's marinesmanship because, Bill, you've been... Um, world champion mule driver twice now? I actually three times and I was reserved twice and reserve is the first loser. <laughs> and that's, that happens down at the mule days in Bishop, California. That is in Bishop, California. I have shown at mule shows all over the West and I don't show anymore. I, uh, I accomplished what I wanted to do. I had a wonderful time now I have been I've given several clinics and any number of exhibitions such as at rodeos or horse shows or things like that. And uh, that takes the pressure off because I know my wife was she said, you just have to cop show, stop showing because if you don't win, you're no fun at all. And that's just unfortunately my personality. But when I was showing, I would start the day after Thanksgiving and I don't have an indoor arena. And I would have to rent an arena, and I would show every Tuesday and Thursday inside. And as soon as the weather warmed up, I would try and drive five days a week outside in order to be competitive. So it becomes kind of a full-time job. And I'm 82, so. I certainly understand that. I know when I'm campaigning a horse, I put about 20 hours a week into them, and, and that's just with one. And you drive a six-up of mules, is that correct? I don't, I do, uh, and I have a six up. I don't hitch them much anymore because the old, I love to drive four, and I'm very, very well known for my unicorn. I have a wonderful unicorn I'm often asked to show, but the old rule was that you drove four, you guided six, and you just heard eight, and that's kind of the answer. When you've got that many out in front of you, uh, it's not very precise, whereas with four, it's extremely precise. Love to do it. That's fantastic. And we'll try to uh, put up some video on CAA on, excuse me, on our Facebook page on Carriage Association of America uh, of Bill Driving. And if you're curious, the unicorn is two in the back and one in the front. And we'll also have some information about how the Carriage Showcase turns out on our website at caaonline.com. Thank you so much, Bill, for being with us today. We greatly appreciate it, and best of luck at the CAA Carriage Showcase. Thank you very much. And now, Wendy, we have to talk a little bit about an omnibus. That's right. That's the thing that lists what shows are coming up at the American Driving Society.org. So if you all open up your website right now, go to American Driving Society.org, hit on omnibus, 
at the top of the page there, it brings you to a complete list of the competitions. And there are over 45 events scheduled for the rest of this year from from today on. And that is terrific. I mean, in the United States, they have 45 driving competitions coming up. I know. That's a lot. And, you know, considering last year, we had not many. So uh, making up for it this year. And coming up immediately uh, tomorrow, actually, if you're anywhere in the Elkton, Maryland area, head over to the Elk Creek CDE, which is happening at Fair Hill, at, at the Fair Hill um, Equestrian. I don't know grounds. why I blanked out on that. <laughs> it's happening at Fair Hill. We used to go to Fair Hill it's, all the time. <laughs> I know. Fair Hill is so fun. It's actually one of my favorite places to drive. It has great terrain, has great hazards, is a great community there. I also love those little tunnels. Did you ever go through the tunnels? Yes. One? And they used to do it in conjunction with the four, three, three-star three event over there at Fair Hill. Right. It used to be yeah. at the same day. The venters would be going cross-country same time as the carriage drivers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, those are the good old days. But anyway, if you're <laughs> anywhere in that area and want to go out and watch a driving competition tomorrow and over the weekend is your day to do that. All the details are on the omnibus here. Uh, also, Elk, uh, if you, we head now from Elk Creek and we head out to the middle of the country, there, and I know we have lots of listeners in Michigan and Wisconsin. In Michigan, we have the Blue Ribbon Driving Show, and that's in Iona, Mi- Ionia. Is that how you say that? Ionia, Michigan. And then in Elkhorn, Wisconsin, the weekend after that, we have the Midwest Carriage Festival and Dressage Show. So there's lots of shows to take a look at. They're always needing volunteers. So even if you're not a carriage driver, we encourage you to volunteer at one of these. Go have some fun. You'll, you'll have fun watching the carriages go through the obstacles and nothing else. And you'll learn a little something too, and you, you'll be around some fun people. And if you've never seen it, a CDE, if you've never seen a combined driving event, it is something to witness. You have to see one once, for sure. Yeah, uh, and you know, the Blue Ribbon uh, show is going to be really fun because they also have a draft horse division. So oh, they cool. have single horse, single pony, minis, then they have multiples, and they also have draft. So and, that that's a kind of special thing to, to be able to have that division in a show. That's fun. And that's in Iona, Michigan, coming up on the Mm -hmm. 12th of June, just uh, next weekend. Plus, I will say this, there's a whole bunch on here. Vermont, Massachusetts, Kentucky, Virginia, Oregon, all over the country, Washington State, Missouri, uh, New York. So so there's just North Carolina. Uh, Then we start getting into the fall. We start heading south again to Texas and North Carolina and to Arizona and Florida. So check it out. AmericanDrivingSociety.org and search for the Omnibus. And Wendy, what are we talking about today in the traditional Chinese medicine segment? Okay, so... Today, we're talking about some little things you can do now with your young horse or your young dog that when they're old, they will thank you for, right? Well, you know, like when you get old, you think back and say, oh, I just wish I did this or I wish I jogged or I wish I, you know, so your horses and your dogs think that too, right? Or you look at your dog and you say, oh my God, my dog has been like so an obese couch potato his whole life. And I wish I didn't, you know, didn't keep him like that, but we're pretty good as horse people keeping our horses 
fit and we worry about them. We take care of their feet and their joints. But come on, let's all admit farm dogs. We are so bad about cutting dogs toenails. Right, Glenn, were you a good toenail cutter? No, Jennifer's the toenail cutter. (laughs) But she's good about it. Yeah, Jennifer's a metal, so I'm sure Jennifer's on a schedule. But for all of us that are non-metals, come on, how many times? Like, if you look down at your horse, or we all have that friend that has a donkey and their feet are horrible, and we're judging them. We're horse (laughs) people. We can't help it. Okay, but you know what? Dog people are probably looking at our dogs thinking the exact same thing. Like, those agility dog people are like, oh, my God, can you believe those dogs' toenails? And look how fat those dogs are. (laughs) I know, exactly. So we should think about it like that. But really, you know, for our dogs, arthritis is the number one issue of our geriatric dogs, right? And when they have long toenails, it puts a lot of stress on their tendons and their feet and their limbs, just like with our horses. So uh, keeping your dog's toenails trimmed on a regular schedule is really important for their long-term health and, and wellness. And if you're not going to do your dog's toenails, like, look, I have Jack Russell's, okay? They bite me every time I do their toenails. <laughs> and you're and a veterinarian. <laughs> yeah, and they don't feel bad about about it. I mean, I even bred the dog I have now. She bites me every single time. So what I do now is it took me long enough, but I just take her down to the groomers. I let the groomers cut her toenails. Yeah, because they have that harness thingy. (laughs) And in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty cheap, right? Because think of how many toenails your dog has and the groomers charge you like, what, 20 bucks? Yeah. Right? Your farrier charged you 40 for four toenails. So the length of, if they're with long toenails all the time, you're saying it can affect the joints. It hurts their joints. Yeah. It'd be like walking in like ill-fitting shoes your entire life. Hmm. Interesting. I never thought about it that way. Same thing with horses, obviously, but we're all aware of our horse's long feet. We make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You never skip. My horses are retired and sit around and just eat. And my farrier comes every five weeks. I would never skip that. We forget our dogs. (laughs) Yeah. And um, another thing with with horses, what we, you know, when we're riding them or driving them, we, we like, if their gait is like, if there's any change to the gait or they're, not symmetrical. We like freak out, right? Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh my God, I got to work this up. And horses, like if they have one little, like they're like the princess and the pea, right? If they're hurting, you know, dogs hide that dogs hide their pain from us. Uh, so when you see your dog limping, I mean, they have a serious issue. So, but sometimes we see our dogs limping and we're like, yeah, oh, yeah, he's got a little hitch in his giddy up because we don't ride them. Right. And they are like, unless we're showing them or doing sport with them, they just like have to be sound enough to go sleep on the couch. But that an asymmetric gait is the first sign that your dog's having some issues and you can fix those issues um, earlier. Like the earlier you treat arthritis, the easier it is to, to resolve. So a lot of dogs, when they are starting to have the beginnings of arthritis or feeling some aches and pains will actually, instead of trotting, they'll pace, right? So if you had a horse that started pacing, oh my God, first of all, you get thrown out of the dressage ring and you'd be really freaked out (laughs) about it. But I see this all the time. I see a lot of dogs pacing when the people are walking. Sometimes it can be as easy as like, they're not walking at a certain speed, you know, and that can throw off their gait. But that's a time when you should look into, uh, into, to see if they have some arthritis. And if they do have some arthritis, then like, 
our joint supplements, we call them chondroprotectives. They protect the joint surface. So it's good to start them, horses and dogs, on chondroprotectives when they're young and they still have healthy cartilage. Because the joint supplements like oral joint supplements and, and or injectable like Adequan, those will save your joints. It extends the length, the length, life length of the joints, right? It protects the cartilage. But once they're already, their cartilage is already damaged, joint supplements may relieve a little bit of pain, but they can't really re- regrow the cartilage. And so those are some really easy tips that you can do for your doggy and horse at home. And um, I'll cover some more tips in the next segment. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. If you want to hear all the past episodes of The Driving Show, go to drivingradioshow.com. You can find them all there on that website all the way back for 9, 10 years now. And, of course, you can find Dr. Wendy Ying at... DrWendyYing.com. You can find her. What And what formula was that we talked about earlier? We talked about body sore. So search for body store. Go to drwendyying.com. We also want to thank Kim and Equine and the American Driving Society for supporting us in this endeavor. We'll be back tomorrow with some really bad ads, and Jamie will be here, and we'll have a little bit of fun. So we'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thank you, Dr. Wendy.